In April 1912, just days after the sinking of Titanic, still in the painfully fresh process of mourning the families of some of the ship's most prominent passengers, the Astors, the Wideners, the Guggenheims, families who lost loved ones, contacted the Merritt and Chapman Derrick and Wrecking Company about raising Titanic from the spot where she sank a patch of the North Atlantic some 450 miles southeast of Newfoundland. The wrecking company knew in 1912 it didn't have the technology to accomplish what the family of, say, J.J. Astor was asking of it, even though the Astors would have had all the money in the world to throw at the process. A place ingrained in the psychological geography of the world's mind, sure, But up until 1985, its precise location, the location where Titanic lay, was unknown, lost in the dark. J.J. Astor's body was actually found by the recovery ship, the Mackay Bennett, tamping down the urgency of such a mission for his family in 1912. But the impulse to find and raise the wreck would never waver. In 1913, Denver architect Charles Smith proposed a scheme to fit a submersible with electromagnets to attract the metal of the sunken hull. Another proposal involved magnets and empty pontoon boats. The World Wars, the Depression, obviously paused these efforts and these thoughts. But in 1953, British marine salvage firm Risden Beasley Limited arrived at the given wreck coordinates to deploy explosives to generate an echo image of the ocean bottom. This is in 1953. This effort failed, though. In 1966, an English hosiery worker, yes, you heard that correctly, named Douglas Woolley proposed surrounding the hull with water-filled plastic, running electricity through it to release gases that would lift the ship up. He also suggested using air-filled nylon balloons. Of course he did. And in the 1970s, he went so far as to found the Titanic Salvage Corporation and assert claim to the unfound wreck. His ultimate plan was to tow Titanic into Liverpool, where she would become a floating museum. Woolley never once actually traveled to the wreck site, though. Others over the years suggested freezing the inside of the ship somehow so that it would simply float up. Someone else wanted to fill it with ping pong balls or wax. At one point, Disney even studied the feasibility of finding the wreck. And by the 1970s, advances in computer science, sonar, deep sea subs, all of this seemed to make it plausible on some level. So in 1976, when Clive Cussler wrote an adventure novel about raising the intact ship straight from the ocean floor, though certainly quite absurd still, of course, it really wasn't something completely out of left field, not if you were a Titanic person. And by the time the film adaptation hit screens four years later, and the ship on screen slid into New York Harbor by tugboat tow, in a real-life twist better than fiction, a Texas oil tycoon named Jack Grimm, who had previously financed expeditions to locate, among other legends, Noah's Ark and Bigfoot, was bankrolling a multi-million dollar quest to find Titanic. That was really going on in 1980. This is all before Robert Ballard. This is all before we knew definitively that Titanic was in pieces on the ocean floor. This was fantasy, but so many people wanted it to be real. I'm LA Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. 
This is Titanic on film, 1980s Raise the Titanic. I'll be straight with you all. <laughs> I I didn't finish the novel upon which this movie is based. It's not my cup of tea, the bluntly written uber-masculine adventure novel. This thing smells like the 1970s when you open it, you know, and it just didn't work for me. But I was excited to watch the movie because I'd heard from several close friends and from several of you who wrote in that the film is worth watching for the actual raising scene. And you were right. More on that in a little bit. But up front here, I also want to say that the meat of this episode of talking about this movie really exists in a pre-Ballard world. If I put the film in the full context of the discovery of the actual wreck in 1985, then this episode would be 17 hours long. I would bore you to death and you'd never listen again. And I promise that episodes on Ballard and the joint venture with the French team that located the wreck, those are on the way. I'm in prep mode. It's a lot. But for now, let's exist in 1980. This is the year The Shining comes out, The Empire Strikes Back, Airplane, Friday the 13th, the era of the expensive disaster adventure movie, think 1970s epic cultural impact of The Towering Inferno, Earthquake, The Poseidon Adventure, also about a capsized luxury liner to note. So this era was kind of already on the wane. Beyond The Poseidon Adventure, which was a, a sequel to the hit released in 1979, for example, totally flopped. The advent of Star Wars had ushered in a new kind of special effects movie, a new kind of blockbuster, an entirely new aesthetic, really. So in hindsight, at least from a study in film history, it's really not that surprising that the 1980 adaptation of Kustler's novel failed miserably at the box office. We're talking earning $7 million against a $40 million budget kind of failure, but at the time, it was kind of shocking to many involved that it did this poorly. The book had been a major success, making Kustler more money than he'd ever imagined he'd see in his lifetime. When a reporter asked him about the profit from selling the film rights, he replied, purportedly, quote, we did buy a new refrigerator. We still eat out only once a week, usually at McDonald's. The film had been optioned by a prolific producer albeit one perhaps best known for bringing us The Muppet Show, hundreds of hours had been poured into the intricate labor of building models for the film. Titanic, of course, seemed to grip the American mind. So the producers thought this was a recipe for a fair amount of success. Not quite. So before I go any further, I want to play you a little clip from the 1980 trailer, just to, if you haven't seen the movie, just to kind of set the tone of what we're working with here. All right, here we go. I think we hit the jackpot. It's at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. You're talking about 12,500 feet underwater. Which leaves us with only 
One choice. Are you talking about raising the Titanic? Yeah. It's the biggest job with the highest stakes anybody ever dreamt of. Are you shocked that it bombed? <laughs> that's, that's mean. There's so much more to it than that. But raise the Titanic did bomb. Uh, audiences ignored it, basically. Kessler hated it, absolutely hated it, and was vocal about hating it. Producer Sir Lou Grade, that's his name, cemented his reputation as Sir Low Grade and notoriously commented afterwards that it, quote, would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic when all was said and done. When I was reading about all this, I couldn't help but think of the parallels to press reports in 1996 about James Cameron's Titanic production. Just 15 years later, after this, a studio would gamble big on Titanic again and win, but not this time. So here's the basic premise of Raise the Titanic. In 1912, it's discovered, American soldiers had mined a fictional element called Byzantium in Arctic Russia, and eventually tried to smuggle it to the United States on the Titanic. In present day, the United States has developed an anti-missile system, part of some deeply secretive mission called the Sicilian Project, led by a man named Dr. Gene Segrip from the Pentagon. This is something that might make the threat of nuclear warfare obsolete because of its extreme power. They describe this project as something that important and that big, but it requires Byzantium. And and by the way, guys, I'm going to pronounce that eight different ways. Byzantium, Byzantium. It may come out differently. It's every time I say it, I also think of Unobtainium from Avatar. (laughs) Speaking of James Cameron, but anyway, sorry. So it requires Byzantium, and this big store of Byzantium is now 13,000 feet below the ocean's surface on Titanic. Enter Clive Cussler's earthy, rugged, anti-James Bond kind of hero, Dirk Pitt, who is apparently only brought in on the most dangerous and absurd of missions, as you heard in the trailer. He proposes that bringing the entire ship up isn't that zany of an idea. It's plausible least if he's involved, add in a subplot of Russian competition, as they feel as though the Byzantium belongs to them, it was stolen from them, and another truncated subplot involving Gene Seagram's wife or partner. In the movie, it's not clear. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But what is clear is that she, her name's Dana, had a dramatic affair with Pitt years prior. And so you have an action movie that really has very little action, but a lot of talk about looming threats. I'm spoiling everything. (laughs) You guys, sorry. Go watch the movie right now. You don't want to hear anything else, but before you before you listen. The movie really downplays the book's Cold War plot, just to note, as well as the love triangle, it downplays that as well. And honestly, I'm no true student of film, but even I can surmise that a lot of scenes must have ended up on the cutting room floor. In May of 1978, just two years after the book's publication, Lou Grade announced the film adaptation would be directed by Jerry Jameson, who had primarily directed television up to that point, and that the movie would be the most expensive production from this production company, Lord Grade, ever at $20 million, but it would have no major movie stars. We don't need them, Lou Grade said, quote, the ship is the star. Anyway, the money that would normally go to actors has been spent on our models. They're magnificent. And he's talking about the models of the ship, not models. 
Grade had already gone through a director change, apparently, at this point, and according to some reports, had already gone through 17 scriptwriters. The group of writers actually included, at one point, the renowned novelist Larry McMurtry, whose works, Terms of Endearment and The Last Picture Show, were adapted into two of arguably the most lauded and best films of all time. And his book, Lonesome Dove, became an equally awarded and remembered miniseries. McMurtry would even win an Oscar in 2005 for adapting the screenplay for Brokeback Mountain. Just side note, he just died this year. Really sad to hear that. But even he couldn't save this script. A screenplay by committee, it rarely seems to work, right? Later, McMurtry said of Raise the Titanic that it was, quote, less a novel than a manual on how to raise a very large boat from deep beneath the sea. Now, people are going to be mad at him calling Titanic a boat, but other than that, you know, true enough, really. The casting of this film would inspire a lot of lore as well. It was fun to research this online. Elliot Gould was offered a lead role at one point, apparently, though I couldn't find a source on whether it was Seagram or Pitt, but he turned it down. Quote, I don't want to raise the Titanic, he reportedly said. Let the Titanic stay where it is. The Pitt role went to Richard Jordan, a Harvard-trained theater actor who had done films, but mostly as a character actor, as villains. He's got this furrowed brow thing going on in the movie and a beard, and honestly, to me, he looks worried for most of the movie. It's just an interesting choice. Uh, it's an interesting uh, way he plays the character. I guess it's he's really trying to evoke that sense of sort of rugged loner kind of feel. The Seagram role went to an actor named David Selby, best known for soap opera roles. But guys, he is... This is my biggest revelation of the movie. It may be the biggest revelation of this episode. He's an absolute dead ringer for Alan Alda. At first glance, I thought Alan Alda was in this movie. Not joking. Please let me know if you agree. And in the role of Admiral James Sandecker, who is the head of an underwater research company employed to actually do the raising of the ship, well, in stepped, if you can believe it, a multiple Academy Award-winning actor, Jason Robards, who openly has said he did the film for, quote, money, my dear money. We're all incidental to the hardware and the special effects on this one. I just have to include here, for Robards, this must have been an interesting role, though, to inhabit in terms of his own personal history. Robards was in the Navy as a younger man, assigned to the heavy cruiser, the USS Northampton, in 1941 as a radio man, third class. During the Battle of Tassafaranga, which I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I really hope I did. In the waters of north of Guadalcanal on the night of November 30th, 1942, the ship, the Northampton, was sunk by two Japanese torpedoes. Robards found himself treading water until near daybreak when he was finally rescued by an American destroyer. Final role I want to talk about the casting of. As surviving third officer John Bigelow, a role in the film that amounts to just a couple of scenes shot on a British street and inside a pub, including a very awkward exchange with a female bartender in which he jokes about her sexual history. Cringe. The film somehow finagled to step into this role Sir Alec Guinness, an Oscar-winning, Tony-winning, knighted Shakespearean-level actor, to note also a former Navy man 
whose resume included literally a rundown of some of the greatest films ever made. Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Star Wars. But here, all he does is let the audience know a backstory. That during the sinking, he encountered the man who was guarding the Byzantium, and that the man went into the cargo hold at the end, shouting, Thank God for Southby! And at this point, it's like a mystery what this means in the film. Oh, and he hands Dirk Pitt a flag, a red flag with a white star on it. And he says he took it off Titanic during the sinking, and if Pitt raises her, he should return the flag to its rightful place on the ship. Pitt eventually does this, a scene which arguably could be really powerful, but all I could think was that there would never be any way that such a valuable artifact from Titanic would have just been hanging on the wall of a pub all these years without being stolen a couple of dozen times. So filming on Raise the Titanic started in October of 1979, after a lot of time and money. By this point, at least $15 million had already been spent on constructing these ship models, including a 10-ton, 50-foot one to use in the raising sequences. This was too big for existing tanks used for filmmaking at this point, so the production built one of the world's first horizon tanks, which held 10 million gallons of water at the Mediterranean Film Studios near Calcara, Malta. Apparently, the model was lowered and raised 50 times until the shot worked, or at least until the director was happy with it. And this reminded me of one of the extras on the DVD for 97's Titanic. So the crew compiled this mashup of behind-the-scene footage of them filming in the water, and it's set to the song Once in a Lifetime by the Talking Heads, because James Cameron would ask crew to raise and lower the sets. You know, these sets could be submerged. They were, you know, raised and lowered according to what point in the movie they were filming and how much flooding was going on. But he apparently would ask them to do it again and again until a shot was perfect. The The lyrics from the song are water dissolving and water removing. There is water at the bottom of the ocean, under the water, carry the water, Remove the water at the bottom of the ocean. Anyway, I digress. Sorry. (laughs) Back to this Raise the Titanic set. An old Greek ocean liner, the SS Athenai, was converted into a replica of the Titanic for the scene after she's raised. These scenes in which Dirk, Pitt, and others walk unencumbered right onto the decks and into the ship moments after it emerges from the water. I had no idea until the last few days as I researched this, but Ken Marshall, the artist and Titanic expert whose paintings were the inspiration for Cameron's imagining of the 97 movie, and who has worked with Cameron for years, was actually brought on as a consultant for this film as well to ensure that the Greek ship they were using looked as convincing as possible, and also to make sure that the models used overall were as accurate as possible covered in muck from the ocean, of course, as it was depicted. But ultimately, some details on the Athenai, the ship they were using to sub in as the Titanic once she was raised, didn't match the model already built. So the model was altered to fit 
the full-scale ship. And this is after Ken Marshall had spent who knows how many hours detailing the models. I've never met him in person, but everything that I understand about Marshall is he's an incredibly detail-oriented person, and I'm sure this drove him crazy. By the time Raise the Titanic was released in 1980, the budget had bloated to what was then reported as something in the region of 35 to $40 million, a truly insane sum at the time. That would be the equivalent to $152 million now. To put that budget into perspective, The Empire Strikes Back, also released in 1980 and revolutionary at the time in terms of special effects, cost about $10 million less than Raise the Titanic. Producers had high hopes, though. The film got free publicity when Jack Grimm's, remember we mentioned him uh, in the intro, planned exhibitions made news and a fever began to build that would, even though no one knew it at the time, of course, culminate in a building kind of oceanographic and scientific crescendo to find the real ship torn into as she was. Now, two things to note here is that this crescendo, this building energy to finding the wreck, it wasn't sudden. Uh, we'll talk about it when we talk about Ballard, but you know, comes on the heels of decades of intense scientific research. So I certainly don't mean to imply that the finding of the wreck was something sudden uh, and magical. It took a lot of painstaking work by a lot of people who probably didn't live to see it happen. It's um, the way that research and, and scientific advancements build is often really slow. And two, that in 1980, a lot of people did believe that Titanic was still intact on the ocean floor. But a lot of survivor accounts had said the opposite. A lot of survivors had claimed that she split into two when she sank. These accounts were not taken into as much consideration during the U.S. Senate hearings in 1912. A lot of the surviving officers insisted that she had sunk intact. And so this was the narrative that was accepted in, in terms of of writing the official histories, but a lot of people suspected that this ship had torn in half when she went down. A couple of really well-known survivors I can think of that testified to that in their own memoirs are Jack Thayer and Ruth Becker, and there are a lot of others. A lot of the third-class passengers testified to this, so Anyway, just wanted to make sure that that you knew that. So all of this led to a moment in 1985, we know now, <laughs> when images of Titanic's boilers popped up on a sub camera for the first time ever. And this happened aboard the ship, the Noor, on which Robert Ballard had, supposedly anyway, a VHS copy of Raise the Titanic. The thing is, I came out of viewing this movie with a lot more good to say than I expected. The movie has this beautiful opening, a montage of historical photos of the Titanic, some of the only ones that we have. I was shocked at how moved I was in those first seconds, how prepared I felt to sort of dissolve into a Titanic story on film. I'm always prepared for that. But I was jolted a bit by the addition of photos of people dancing in a ballroom that was decidedly not on Titanic because Titanic didn't have one. <laughs> and these last few photos seem like maybe they're from the 1920s, so it's off. And then all I could think about was the end of The Shining, the movie The Shining, which also came out that year, 1980, and Jack Nicholson in that photo in the 1920s ball. 
honestly, I'm starting to think I need a film podcasting outlet just across the board for some of this stuff. So what do you think? I don't know. And maybe then I wouldn't have so many tangents here. Who am I kidding? I'm the queen of tangents. I probably always will be. So the scene of the ship emerging from the water, it looks shockingly good for a 1980 film, especially. A friend had told me before I watched it that this is what we all want to see, right? In a way, it's what we fantasize about, this image of her rising from the sea. It surely is what a lot of Titanic obsessives fantasized about before number one, we found out the ship was indeed broken apart. And two, we found out how deteriorated the wreck actually is via consumption by underwater creatures. But here the ship is brought to the surface using compressed air tanks and buoyancy aids, not strategies that far removed from some of the schemes that entrepreneurs had for raising the ship in 1913 that we already uh, that I already mentioned, or in the 1950s, really ever since it sank. It's really not that far removed from some of these tactical ideas. And the water drains as she rises in the shot. It's clear in these shots that all the freaking money was indeed spent on the model. And if you're someone who loves to study the ship, if you're someone like me who has devoted a certain percentage of their life to thinking about it and reading about it and talking about it, to see this representation of such a fantasy of it breaking daylight again, it's surprisingly effective as a shot, as a cultural moment. I like to talk a lot about gender and the Titanic historiography on this podcast. And I'll tell you, the novel Raise the Titanic is ripe for the picking (laughs) in terms of outdated gendered speak and storylines. Dana, Seagram's wife, who is mostly cut from the film adaptation, in the novel is set to spout, quote, bleeding heart liberal crap and has a, quote, fetish for women's lib and notably refuses to give up her career to have kids. I'll let you digest that. In the book, Dana is on the mission at the Titanic site as well, and the Russians hold her hostage at some point, and she has to be rescued by, of course, the manly Dirk Pitt, not her own husband. And she and Dirk apparently have torrid relations, I'll say, in a B-deck suite on Titanic. I didn't make it to this part of the book. I just read about this. I'm kind of glad that I didn't. There's a little less of all this in the film, mostly because the film scraps a lot of the romantic storyline. But don't get me wrong, it's a very male film. Dirk Pitt is definitely supposed to be a masculine hero who saves the day, who manages to save the Titanic, of all things, some 70 years later. And the Seagram character is definitely the weaker of the two, the company man, the government man. But importantly, it's all also men on the ship that monitors the expedition. It's all men on the subs that do the dirty work. It's all men who debate the pros and cons of Byzantium's potential on the world stage. And the dialogue is, okay, let me just play you one clip. And this is a good one because it involves Titanic being called a man and a woman kind of in the same scene. You'll see what I mean. One second. Incredible. 
So that's from the scene, right? As she's raising from the water and the all the crew of the expedition are on the decks. When the ship emerges, it's portrayed as just mere moments before she's absolutely upright, patched in her iceberg wounds, completely floating. And Pitt just walks right onto the ship. No preservationists, no conservationists to be found, no examination or safety checks before his boots hit the deck and the interiors of this ship that's been on the bottom of the ocean for 70 years. The dome of the Grand Staircase is mostly intact. Again, a fantasy that we now know to be false. Unfortunately, it's completely gone down there in the wreck. But I was thinking, as ridiculous as these scenes are, and believe me, they are ridiculous, isn't this the walk that we all kind of want to make to pace the remains of that staircase, to peer around corners and see what might have survived, to feel our feet wet on that floor? At one point, Pitt just jumps on a crew outer staircase, just not even a hesitation of, oh, I wonder if this staircase will still hold me. Is it still stable? And it's here that the movie lost me again. I mean, I spent most of the movie lost, really, because the Russian subplot is pointless. And really, the search for the Byzantium is pointless, too. It's like the heart of the ocean in Titanic, in 97's Titanic, classic MacGuffin. By the time they're looking for this material in the hold of the ship, who cares? We're all just here for Titanic. It's like breaking down the wall between author and reader or filmmaker and viewer. It's so obvious that all of this has been about getting on Titanic. And once we're on it, that first 30 to 45 minutes of the movie just seemed pretty, pretty empty buildup. Kessler was apparently pretty angry at the adaptation, partly because it seems like a lot of edits were made. Uh, The Russians play a bigger role in the book, from what I understand, but here they're just sort of lurking. And there is this one scene where a Russian head of operations, some sort of, you know, representative of the Russian camp on this other ship that's sort of just floating nearby, is helicoptered, the Russian is helicoptered onto Titanic. It's, it's like becoming a helipad at this point to meet with Pitt. He threatens to sink the Titanic for a second time, just moments after it's reemerged, if they don't get the Byzantium because they claim that it's theirs. A queue of fighter planes and a Navy sub emerging and the Russians are put at bay. The the American military has arrived. I think there's a huge storm as a plotline in the novel, too, that gets cut. It's funny because a lot of what is cut from the novel seems like shoved into dialogue. Um, Here's, I'll just read instead of playing, I'll just read it really quickly. Here's one set of, of, of dialogue that seems to do that. And this is when Pitt realizes that their ship is headed off in this scene. Pitt says, where's the carpenter going? And Sandecker says, there's a distress call. Pitt, we're in distress for Christ's sake. We need that ship. Sandecker, you can't ignore a distress call. Side note, that's very relevant to Titanic story. Pitt then says, you want to talk about distress? We have the Navy forecasting a Force 12 storm. We have the Russians breathing down our necks. We're on a ship that never learned how to do anything but sink. That's distress. 
The movie is worth watching for the raising scene and also for the towing scene, this sequence in which the rusticled and mangled but triumphant Titanic sails into New York Harbor on a tugboat tow seven decades after she was due, with Dirk Pitt and Robard's character Sandecker on board. Side note, part of the shot is actually from the 1976 Bicentennial celebration with the Titanic kind of or their version of the Titanic kind of superimposed over it. It's really, again, alarmingly moving, surprisingly moving, but I think that's just a built-in emotion if you're a Titanic person. I'm not even sure it's a merit of the film so much as it's just a result of an accidental recipe that works. Person invested in Titanic story and its tragedy watches a movie in which the Titanic is essentially resurrected and returned to her glory. Of course, that's going to feel emotional. So the movie ends really anticlimactically. Seagram and Pitt want the same woman, of course, the journalist Dana, who gets absolutely no screen time once the mission begins. But that plot line is just abandoned. And really, at the end, the two men seem to find some amount of understanding and solace in one another, and they talk to one another. And that's not a terrible ending of a movie if the emotional investment is there. But I don't know. If you're, if you're someone who is emotionally invested in these characters, please let me know. I really want to try and understand. Plot-wise, this is what happens. The American who was transporting the Byzantium had actually arranged a fake burial of it in a graveyard in Southby, England. That's why he says, thank God for Southby, according to that officer who encountered him, played by Alec Guinness. And he had done this prior to sailing on Titanic. So when the team led by Dirk Pitt opens up the crates on Titanic, Byzantium's not in there. These crates are just full of rocks. That pause is the sound of me deciding not to make a joke about the movie being a pile of rocks. Pitt and Seagram decide to leave the mineral in the grave in South B because they agree its existence would destabilize humanity and potentially incite even more horrific types of warfare. Roger Ebert said it best in his review. Here's a little chunk from his review. I want to read it verbatim. Quote, Raise the Titanic is almost a good movie. It has some wonderful moments, but they're bogged down in two moronic subplots. Why is it that they always gum up great movie ideas by shoveling in those two infallible dead ends, the girl and the Russians? We get some hot scientific gobbledygook about how the Titanic might really be in pretty good shape, down there two miles below the frigid Atlantic, where it wouldn't rust because of the oxygen shortage in the water. The movie succeeds in recreating some of the romance of Titanic itself. The girl's completely unnecessary, as are all of her scenes, especially one in which she and her boyfriend go fishing all the way out in the country just so a helicopter can turn up with orders to take the guy back to town. The Russians are also unnecessary, and so is the basic premise of this plot, end quote, from the late Roger Ebert. In terms of the Russian subplot, okay, deep breath. There is obviously so much analysis to be had in terms of military involvement in 
oceanography, in exploration, and this applies to the discovery of the wreck in 85 in some pretty big ways, and the entirety of a Robert Ballard conversation. There's a whole Cold War thread to be pulled on here, and I chose not to today for two reasons. One, because it's not an era that's my specialty in terms of academic training, and I fear I wouldn't do it justice without many months of research. And two, I didn't want this episode to be five hours long. One thing I will mention, that for as crazy as the plotline of this movie sounds on paper, or really at all, the way the team finds the wreck in the movie is not that different from how Ballard, his team, and the French team led by Jean-Louis Michel found the wreck in 85. They were they did it by combing, albeit in real life much more meticulously and with a lot more planning, a larger area around the wreck's alleged coordinates. And it's also part of the debris field that they find first, as in the movie, as in this movie. It really is kind of strange that this novel and film enter the cultural consciousness less than a decade before the wreck was found, a coincidence which led Kessler to claim in an updated preface to the book that his work might have actually inspired the expeditions to find the ship. I laughed a little. So we'll talk about all this in depth soon enough too, but in reality, a piece of the Titanic has been raised at 6.18 p.m. on August 10th, 1998. A crusty piece of wreckage emerged from the North Atlantic into the air for the first time in 86 years at that point. The big piece, as it's known, weighed nearly 20 tons and measured approximately 27 by 20 feet when it was recovered from the wreck site, from the debris field, by a company called RMS Titanic Inc., a company which has controversially, to put it mildly, brought up hundreds and hundreds of artifacts from the debris field. This particular piece was originally located on the starboard side of the ship, between the third and fourth funnels of the BNC decks. It's undergone extensive preservation processes, including a lot of time resubmerged in water as it acclimated to life above the surface. And it can now be found, at of all places, in the exhibition at the Luxor Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, USA. There's a lot to unpack here, guys. I'm not skirting around it. I'm going to jump right into it in future episodes. We're going to talk about this. In the meantime, something else is rusting now too. That 10-ton scale model, the Titanic that was actually raised from the ocean, was left on the grounds of Mediterranean Film Studios in Malta and subsequently severely damaged by a storm in 2003 and is now rusted beyond repair, succumbing to the elements. Guys, Clive Cussler was reportedly so disgusted with the film that he refused to give any permission for further film adaptations of his books until 25 years later. But that situation turned rather sour as well when he did eventually. In 2006, Cussler sued the filmmakers of Sahara. Is it Sahara or Sahara? So I'm going to say Sahara, a film adaptation of his 1992 book, and he sued them for failing to consult him on the script. This was the Matthew McConaughey movie with Penelope Cruz. And Steve Zahn. Remember Steve Zahn? Remember when he was on movie posters? By the way, if you haven't watched um, the series White Lotus on HBO, 
It's just recent from this year. You absolutely should. It's really good. And Steve Zahn is great in it. Who knew we'd be talking about Steve Zahn? It's a tangency. But really, McConaughey was Dirk Pitt. Just think about that. McConaughey eventually plays Dirk Pitt from Ray's, you know, it's kind of like Bond, right? Like different people can play him. And he plays essentially the same person who raised the Titanic. It's interesting to think about. And you may not know this, but McConaughey was also almost Jack Dawson in 1997. He came very close to being cast in the Leo role. All comes full circle. Thanks for listening as usual, guys. I apologize if my voice has been a little scratchy in this episode. I am battling Texas allergies and also just the crud that my two small children bring home from the cesspool that is elementary school every week. So I apologize for that. I want to give a shout out to my new Patreon subscribers. And I know I said I would do it in a regular episode. And so I'll probably mention you guys again when I post the next regular episode. But I was so excited that I couldn't not mention in this one as well. And so I want to shout out my newest subscribers. They're unsinkable VIPs on Patreon. So a huge thank you to Shirley Lieb, to Stephen Schwenkert, and to Bob Ismay is Innocent. <laughs> Seely. Uh, Bob and I have been emailing a little bit about Bruce's May, so kind of an inside joke, but I love it. So to Shirley, to Stephen, to Bob, this is a huge deal. I appreciate your support. Thank you so much. And as a reminder, if you do sign up on Patreon at any tier, you do get access to bonus episodes. And I have decided that bonus episodes are going to post on the last day of every month. It's a, I think a really easy way to sort of keep up with that. I do have a poll on the Patreon going right now about what should be the first bonus episode. So you can go vote in that. And if you are able to become a Patreon subscriber, it's patreon.com backslash unsinkable pod. Again, not expected, but I did want to mention also an amazing way to support the show is by rating and reviewing on Apple. Shameless request here, guys. I would really appreciate it if you did. Written reviews on Apple do a lot to help the optics on the pod. It's how people find podcasts. It's also, I think, how people sort of judge whether they should give a podcast a try. And so they're really important. I I hate getting bogged down in sort of the logistics of things like that. And I hate to ask for that. But if you do listen on Apple and you are enjoying the podcast and you have a couple of extra minutes, greatly appreciate it. The listenership for the podcast is growing every week. It's amazing. I'm incredibly thankful as always. If you'd like to contact me just to talk about anything, did I get something right? Did I get something wrong? It's unsinkablepod at gmail.com on Instagram, unsinkablepod, on Twitter, unsinkablepod. Please contact me about anything. I truly mean that. And I'm trying to think what else. Thank you for people who have been writing in. I got an email from a listener named Avi about just Titanic films in general. He's watched a bunch of them. He recommended some I should see. That was great. I got an email from a listener named Louise uh, who turned me on to a podcast I, I need to listen to. 
very excited about. And once I have, I will mention that in a podcast rec segment on the next episode. Uh, But I want to kind of listen to it and digest it so I can talk about it with you. But it's the conversation's amazing. It's it's fantastic. Keep it coming. So I will see you in one week for the next full regular episode. And that is going to be on Helen Churchill Candy, really incredible passenger survivor. Her tale, so to speak, is not told enough. She had really extraordinary life before Titanic and after Titanic. Uh, Chelsea and I talked about her a little bit in the Titanic on fiction episode, but she was a women's activist. She was really progressive for her time. She was an author. She is just, I don't know, I, I think a good example of the women from Titanic that we need to be highlighting more, kind of rewrite the narrative, not only of of Titanic, but also lives of Titanic survivors and passengers before and after the ship sank. Really looking forward to that. And can't wait to kind of dig into someone's full life again, like I did with the Ismay episode. So look out for that in one week. And in the meantime, cheers. Happy Thanksgiving if you're in the US. Have a wonderful holiday. And I will see you soon. Bye.